When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the 25th of March, 1970. A ship is en route from Antwerp in Belgium to Dublin. The ship is the MV City of Dublin. It's 7am and Captain James Kelly is at the quayside. Captain Kelly knows that there is an important cargo on the ship. The cargo is listed as metal plate, but that's a cover name for illegal guns, ammunition and bulletproof vests. The ship arrives and docks. But when the cargo is unloaded, Captain Kelly doesn't see what he's expecting to see. This is episode five of Gunplot. I'm Nicolene Greer, and together with my colleague Ronan Kelly and the RTE Documentary and One team, we are unpicking the stories that make up one of the biggest political scandals Ireland has ever seen, the arms crisis of 1970. And remember, you can catch Gunplot, the TV documentary on the RTE player. We'll come back to Dublin Port later. But first, let's talk about how we got there. We left you in December 1969 after those botched attempts to buy guns in the UK. And so far, nobody on a state salary has made direct attempts to buy guns. Sure, the money they'd been using to try to buy guns was from that £100,000 government fund given to Minister for Finance Charles Hahi. But the people travelling to the UK and the US in pursuit of weapons were people like John Kelly and Jack Hockey, people associated with the Republican movement and the IRA. And it wasn't working. Two trips to the UK and one to America resulted in no guns and some very frustrated would-be gunrunners. But arrangements were about to change and official Ireland was about to get in deeper. We're now in January 1970. And the list of people in the story of the Irish arms crisis is growing. So much so that you may feel like writing them down. But you don't have to, because it's been done already. On that anonymous note we heard about at the beginning of this whole series. The note that was brought to the Taoiseach's office. And which spoke of a sensational plot. A plot to bring in arms from Germany worth £80,000 for the North under the guise of the Department of Defence. And listed the names of people supposedly involved. Those involved are Captain James Kelly, 
intelligence officer. Let's go through some of the names by way of recap. Captain James Kelly. Captain James Kelly. Intelligence officer. By January 1970, he was working with the defence committees who had a plan to buy guns, but no money to do so. Well, it was a matter of talking to the people on the ground and the people who would be concerned with using those arms if the arms were, were made available. The Irish government had money but wanted to make sure that the so-called right people got it. The kind of people who wouldn't turn around and use the guns to try to bring down that same government. Captain Kelly's job at this point was to identify those right kind of people. What I learned in Belfast, people talking about overthrowing both governments. The same people then come to you and say, we want arms. But it's very strange looking for arms from a government that they're going to overthrow. Those involved. The next name, Hawhey, Minister Charles Hawhey. Of course, I think also that I'm very much interested in people as people. Irish Minister for Finance. Just one thing in presenting this cheque, I want to point out that because of the bank strike, it's not a cheque at all, it's hard cash. (laughs) Any Irish government money that might be used to buy guns for Northern Catholics was under his control in a £100,000 fund given to him by the Cabinet to be spent on the North. And most of this money was put into a bank here in Baggett Street, Dublin. In accounts with false names. Anne Ryan and George Dixon. The Anne Ryan account money was earmarked for propaganda to promote the case of the Catholic minority in the North. The George Dixon account money was for guns, ammunition, bulletproof vests and gas masks. Otherwise, Minister Charles Hawhey was very quiet in this period, January 1970, and in fact afterwards too. This is his son, Sean. So uh, my father never spoke about the arms trial. No, he, he was never inclined to commit details of the arms trial to paper. The other minister on the note was anything but quiet. Those involved are Hawhey and Blaney. Minister Neil Blaney continued to push a more hardline view on the North than did the Taoiseach, the man whose job he wanted. Looking at the scene there since last August. Here's Neil Blaney complaining that things weren't improving in the North for the minority, the Catholic population, especially the proposed reforms. The reforms were not, in fact, coming through as they were so promised over the last couple of months. But other than that, Neil Blaney has been quite careful about being associated with any plan to import arms. This is his son, Eamon. Put like this, he, he was a cute boy now. There was no flies in him. As I said, he was a cute man. But if Neil Blaney was cute in keeping his activities low-key, he didn't stop them. Before Christmas, he had arranged for a passport for the Belfast Republican John Kelly so he could go to New York to meet Irish-American Republicans and try to source weapons. Those Republicans didn't particularly want to do a deal with the Irish government. But then again, the Irish government were willing to pay them £75,000 for guns, so they agreed. The suspicion was mutual. Blaney didn't trust these Irish-Americans and at the 11th hour cancelled the transfer of the £75,000. And the reason for this distrust was because Neil Blaney wanted control of any guns coming into Ireland. And he reckoned any guns coming from the US would go straight into the hands of those who not only wanted to bring down the government in the north, but also the government in Dublin. Neil Blaney's own government. So there are the two ministers on the note, 
Hahi and Blaney. Those involved are... But now it's time to tell you that there was actually a third minister named on the note. Hahi, Blaney and Gibbons. I won't sell my soul. Minister for Defence, Jim Gibbons. I won't sell my leader. This is him speaking at a party conference known in Ireland as the Nordesh. I won't sell my family and I won't sell my party. And he was being heckled by the crowd. Go back to Trinity College. As well as being a government minister, Jim Gibbons was a farmer. These fellas over there know nothing about agriculture. They know nothing about you. Because I'm one of you. But they're not. Look at their beards. Where we are now is four miles from Tricanny City. This is the late minister, Jim Gibbons' son, Martin. To the mixed farm. He had a cattle, sheep and tillage, you know. He didn't speak much about the events of 69-70. He never spoke much about what went on. My mother often thought after everything that went on, he might have been a happier person if he had to stay farming, you know. But anyway, that's not here or there. Why would Jim Gibbons' wife have sometimes wished he stayed farming? Because when the whole arms crisis broke, and for long afterwards, Jim Gibbons was one of the most denigrated men in the episode. I stand by every living word I said. Jim Gibbons is here speaking at the first Ordesh to take place after the arms trials. Let no man call me a liar. But many a man did call him a liar, including this man. Before Gibbons left the office of Chief Superintendent Fleming on May the 1st... Captain James Kelly, the Army Intelligence Officer. He indicated that he was a competent and highly respected officer of the Defence Forces. Here he is in his back garden making a statement to reporters just after his arrest for conspiring to import arms. What Gibbons has done is nothing better than character assassination, obviously intended to, pres- to preserve his position at any cost to his honour and integrity. And Jim Gibbons spent the rest of his public life defending his reputation. I know that there are people throughout the country who subscribe to the belief that was propagated by the media, as I had some part in this famous conspiracy. Because some of my relations are ill. Captain Kelly in his back garden speaking to reporters. And I say this, if they should die from the shock of what Gibbons has done, he'll be guilty of nothing less than murder. That was in May 1970, when the arms crisis scandal broke and the Gardaí started making arrests. But rewind to January of that year, where we're at with our story. And the question of how involved Captain Kelly was going to get in buying guns crops up. Up until then, he was intelligence gathering and money for guns was handed over to the defence committees. But that arrangement wasn't working. The defence committees had found guns in the States, but Neil Blaney refused to hand over the money for them. Then he had given them a name of a man in Germany, Otto Schluter. But Otto Schluter had turned out to be extremely unreliable. On three occasions, he had said he was sending a ship from Hamburg with guns. On each occasion, fishing boats had been sent out to the Kish Lighthouse off Dublin to meet Schluter's ship. 
and on each occasion, Schluter's ship failed to turn up. So the committee thought Captain Kelly would have better luck. But for an army officer to go and buy guns illegally would need the say-so of the Minister for Defence. And here we present you with another of the contradictions that this story is strewn with. We're in January 1970. And according to the government version of events, at this point, the Minister for Defence and the Taoiseach had no idea that Captain Kelly was trying to buy arms. They only found out months later, they said. But this man, a friend of Jim Gibbons, said it wasn't that straightforward. Jim Gibbons was one of the most honourable people I ever met in politics. This is Ben Briscoe, a member of the Irish Parliament, the Dáil, for 37 years. Jim Gibbons had told Jack Lynch that there was an attempt being made to bring in guns. Lynch's reaction was, guns? Yes, said Jim, guns. And when was this, do you know? In December was the first time Jim Gibbons went to him and told him. I think it was Kelly had been coming to him giving him reports. It was either Heffern or Kelly, but I think it was probably Kelly who'd been reporting to him. And then when this thing blew up in the door, Jim was called, of course, by Lynch and asked, you know, what the hell's going on? You know, why didn't you tell me about this? I did, Gibbons said, twice, and he did nothing. And Lynch said, oh, this would be very bad for the party if that came out. And did Jim Gibbons not say that he only found out about the guns in the march? If he did, he was still trying to protect Lynch. Again, Jack Lynch and Jim Gibbons said this didn't happen. Nevertheless, Captain Kelly went ahead and started to try to buy black market guns. And his boss, Colonel Hefferin, said he kept the minister, Jim Gibbons, fully informed on what was happening. Jim Gibbons said that didn't happen. Even as Minister for Defence, he says he didn't have full control over the army captain's work. Jim Gibbons' son Martin said Colonel Heffern had Captain Kelly reporting to several bosses. Colonel Heffern, in his own statements, said that he'd want to go see Hahi or Blaney. And when you see that kind of stuff sticking up, you know the chain of command is not as it should be. This is how Captain Kelly explained it. Blaney had a lot of information on the north and Blaney used to feed me stuff all the time and tell me what was going on and I used to take it and digest it and sort of sort it out of my own information. But according to Jim Gibbons' son Martin, these meetings between Neil Blaney and Captain Kelly were about more than information. They were also about decisions and concrete actions. And one senior officer told his father that Hohi, Blaney and Army Intelligence were outplaying him. He'd met my father and he told my father that these guys are running rings around you. And that's the question. Was Minister Jim Gibbons having rings run around him or was he being kept in the loop? Colonel Heffern, Director of Military Intelligence, says his minister was fully briefed. This is Colonel Heffern's son, Colm. With the minister, it was very often every second day during the period from January to April because of the changing nature of the peace. Martin Gibbons says his father told him very little about the arms crisis, but he did say he was not being told the full story. He was getting partial reports from the Director of Intelligence, not full accounts. 
Colonel Heffron disputed that, and so did Captain James Kelly in the trial. Mr. Gibbons was fully informed at all times, and if he did not agree with the operation, all he had to do was say, stop. And as Minister for Defence, his orders would have been obeyed. He did not say stop through Colonel Heffron, or he did not say stop to me directly. He fully approved, and at all times he had full knowledge of what was going on. This is more than just a case of who said what to whom. If the minister knew what his officer was doing, then he could be held responsible for his activities. If he was unaware, then he could not. But now, in early February 1970, Jim Gibbons was to be at the centre of a crucial moment in the arms crisis story. And, in fact, it's an important moment in Irish history. It came right at the end of a meeting the Minister Jim Gibbons was having with Colonel Heffron, the Director of Army Intelligence. The meeting finished. Colonel Heffron's son, Colm. And Dad got up to go and he said, hold on a second, Colonel Heffron, I hear somebody coming in, coming into the Minister's office, right? It was the Chief of Staff, the highest ranking officer in the Army. And Mr Gibbons said, I have news don't go, Colonel Heffron, this news affects you too and you're going to have to work on it. So he said, I have just come from Cabinet. This is a quote. I have just come from Cabinet and I am instructed to tell you to prepare for armed incursions into Northern Ireland. Well, both of the men said you could have knocked them over with a feather. This directive, however, wasn't written down. It was given to the two army men verbally by the Minister for Defence. So, as they were leaving his office, the Chief of Staff told the Colonel to immediately write down what they had been told. On the 6th of February 1970, this government directive was issued. Captain James Kelly. To the Chief of Staff by the Minister for Defence, Jim Gibbons. Colonel Heffern took note of it in his notebook. And he came back and he discussed it with me. The directive came in the midst of a series of meetings between the Defence Committees and Irish Government Ministers, including Taoiseach Jack Lynch. The committee said the Catholics were still under imminent threat in the North and were urging Lynch to give them guns. Lynch said he'd give them gas masks, but would put the question of guns to his cabinet. In the event, his cabinet decided to issue a directive to the army to plan and prepare for incursions into the North. But, as we've said, the directive was given verbally and not in an official document. This allowed some members of the government, like Des O'Malley here, to doubt that it existed at all. If all this was by word of mouth, uh, to my mind it is somewhat unclear. But it could only have existed in the context of a complete doomsday situation where very large numbers of nationalists might have been attacked and large numbers of them killed and wounded. But a paper version of the directive did exist. A few days after their verbal instruction from Minister Jim Gibbons, the army went back to him with a series of questions seeking clarification on what the government policy on the plan to prepare for incursions was. And 30 years later, the release of state papers revealed that clarifying document. Okay. It says, in reference to the direction of 6th of Feb 70, 
Colonel Heffern's son, Colm. Which was made known to on California by the Minister for Defence, Mr James Gibbons, which required the army to be trained and prepared for incursions into Northern Ireland. The Chief of Staff had assumed that these incursions would only be made in circumstances in which there would be a complete breakdown of law and order, in which the lives of the minority would be in grave danger and in which the security forces in Northern Ireland would be unable or unwilling to protect that minority. The Taoiseach confirmed that the circumstances envisaged by the government were those assumed by the Chief of Staff. So in February 1970, the Irish Army went ahead and drew up plans. So it was called Exercise Armageddon. This is Tom Clonan, former Irish Army officer and security specialist. At paragraph four, they talk about a conventional land incursion across the border at a town perhaps like Newry or Derry. At paragraph 17, they talk about deploying special forces to carry out non-conventional operations or covert operations involving attacks on critical infrastructure such as Belfast City Airport, the International Airport, the BBC Studios and so on. This is what the government asked the Chief of Staff and the General Staff to actively prepare and plan for. And in the documents, you know, the Chief of Staff sets out his misgivings about the viability of such an operation and the likely very, very hostile reaction from our nearest neighbours from Britain. Part of that planning was that hundreds of guns, ammunition, gas masks and bulletproof vests were gathered and stored in barracks at Athlone and Dublin in case they had to be rushed over the border. So... If the government and the senior army staff were involved in a comprehensive plan to supply arms to the Catholics in the north, and they had them sitting ready in army storehouses in Athlone and Dublin, then that was the end of the small-scale plan to import illegal arms. Well, no. You see, the guns stored in Athlone and Dublin were traceable to the Irish army, so could only be used as a last resort in case they were seized by the British. Black market guns without serial numbers were still needed. And when Captain Kelly heard about this larger scale February the 6th plan, he was emboldened. Because this was precisely one of the possibilities that he had been discussing at the meeting in Baileyborough with the defence committees. If the Irish army invaded, they could use guns to hold the Catholic areas until the invading forces arrived to take over. Captain Kelly. Up until then, we were talking about bringing in arms for defensive purposes for the people in the north. Now the thing has suddenly changed that the government were preparing to intervene in Northern Ireland in a military basis. But how much is this Captain Kelly's own interpretation of the government initiative? Let me ask you this because I think it's important. it is a very important question. He's here talking to Mike Mallott for RTE in 1995. You can identify a whole number of areas of government policy that would have led you to believe that you should be involved in bringing in arms. But I want to, I want to be quite clear and maybe it's in the nature of, of military intelligence operations, but you, it is the case that you're not able to point to a specific order that was ever given to you, Orders. either by Heffron or by Gibbons, saying, uh, go uh, to the continent and buy them. Uh, Mike, stop it. Listen, I got orders all the time. Heffron told me to go here, go there, and go everywhere. And when I went to, for example, when I went over to Europe, 
Heffern instructed me to go. He got the clearance from Gibbons. I mean, what was that? He didn't come in and sort of say, listen, Captain Kelly, you should uh, head off for Vienna. He came in and said, uh, maybe it might be a good idea to go here or go there. And in February 1970, one idea was for Captain Kelly to go to Hamburg to meet with the arms dealer, Otto Schluter. This is the same man who earlier had failed to send the guns to the fishing boats waiting off the Kish lighthouse. Herr Schluter already had £3,000 of Irish government money for guns. This had been given to him by Belfast Republican John Kelly on an earlier trip to arrange the rendezvous off Kish. John Kelly was unimpressed by Schluter. Well, I think Schluter was a dealer in death. You know, he was an arms dealer had no principles except money you know, and would sell anyone you know, to the next highest bidder. And uh, was I felt from the beginning, the first time I met him, that he was a very unsavoury character, you know, just in trying to assess him, which I told Jim Kelly I didn't trust him, you know, from day one. Despite Schluter failing to deliver, while his fellow officers were working on a plan to mount incursions into the north, Captain Kelly got ready to fly to Hamburg to meet Herr Schluter. And if anyone was suspicious about how a junior army officer could afford to fly to Europe in those pre-Ryanair days, he had an urgent reason already. And it was at that stage that a sister in Frankfurt or something had sort of used that as a cover story, if anyone asked me. Captain Kelly's cover story was that his sister in Frankfurt was very sick and he needed to visit her. Just in case, he also got his wife to phone a colleague in the army and mention this sister's fictional illness. On the 19th of February 1970, Captain Kelly flew to Germany to meet Otto Schluter to try to buy some black market guns. He had on him £10,000 in cash from the George Dixon account in the bank in Bagot Street, Dublin. Hello. Hey, is that Pat? That's him, that's him. Ronan Kelly here from RTE, how are things? Not too bad, Ronan. If you go online, you'll do well to find a photograph of Otto Schluter. But one man who managed to get one was Irish photojournalist Pat Langan. He was very wary of photographs. Mm -hmm. And uh, the only photograph they had wasn't very good. When the arms crisis scandal broke, he was working on the story and headed off to Hamburg with a reporter to interview and photograph Otto Schluter in his office. He had an office in this apartment. I can't remember, did we ring up first or just go there? But when we got to the door, it was quite an ordinary looking door, sort of mahogany door, but when the door was opened, it was a solid steel door <laughs> inside. <laughs> I don't think it was going to be easily broken into. We were told he wasn't there, but we were in the office and had a good look around. And all around the walls of his office were uh, illustrations of weaponry. Wow. And there was a cigarette lighter on his coffee table. A cigarette lighter was a converted hand grenade. <laughs> to light it, you pull the plug, pull the pin. <laughs> really? Yeah. And uh, then I think it was his secretary or somebody came into the office and said, uh, oh, I'm terribly sorry, but... Uh, I can't tell you anything, and uh, he's gone to the airport. He's on his way to Berlin. Captain Kelly got to see Otto Schluter, but he didn't get to see the guns. And I came back a bit worried. But Schluter said that he would have the arms available sometime during March. 
In early March 1970, Captain Kelly met with Minister for Defence Jim Gibbons to tell him what was happening with Schluter. Jim Gibbons later confirmed that this meeting took place and that he asked no questions and made no comment. So Captain Kelly pressed ahead. On the 10th of March, Captain Kelly flew back to Germany to see Herr Schluter. Again, he didn't get to see any guns, but still he arranged for a consignment to be shipped to Dublin through Antwerp in Belgium at the end of the month. Captain Kelly came back to Dublin and went to see Charles Hahi to arrange for customs clearance for the shipment from Belgium. He was given it. The guns were due to arrive on a ship called the MV City of Dublin. This is Captain Kelly testifying during the arms trial months later. Uh, Captain Kelly, just for purpose of clarification, about this cargo that was to come in on the city of Dublin, you would arrange the customs clearance of that uh, on the authority of Mr. Hawley. On the the authority of Mr. Hawley, yes. Finally, on March 25th, 1970, the day the city of Dublin was due to arrive, Captain Kelly arranged for a private lorry to transport the guns and a couple of men from the north of Ireland to load them and he headed down to Dublin Port to meet the ship coming in from Antwerp. And this is the scene you heard at the beginning of this episode with Captain Kelly on the quayside, waiting. But it turns out that Captain Kelly and his group of men were not the only ones waiting for the city of Dublin to come in. On the 25th of March 1970, when the ship, the MV City of Dublin, was about to dock, there were two sets of eyes on the boat. The author, David Burke, says Captain Kelly was accompanied by Belfast man John Kelly. He was there representing the defence committees, but in the background, John Kelly's IRA comrades had been tipped off and were waiting. Somewhere in a van, I believe, there were four men ready to hijack the weapons. The hijack unit was there on the orders of the IRA to hijack these weapons, and John Kelly was also involved. So Captain Kelly was unaware that John Kelly was prepared to hijack and take these guns. Unaware of the IRA hijackers, Captain Kelly waited on the quayside. According to Captain Kelly, the men he was with were armed, sort of. One man had an ancient revolver. They also had some white pills given to them by Neil Blaney for their nerves. Without warning, an Irish army lorry full of armed soldiers pulled up alongside them. They believed they had been discovered. The man with the old pistol thought of pulling it out, but thought again when he saw the number of soldiers. Instead, he asked for one of Neil Blaney's little pills. When the Irish Army soldiers got out of their truck, Captain Kelly recognised the sergeant in charge and went over to talk to him. It turned out, by sheer coincidence, they were there to pick up arms from the MV City of Dublin too. In this case, an official consignment for the Irish Army. The MV City of Dublin docked, and the Irish Army sergeant and his men went to collect their load. Then, it was Captain Kelly's turn. But when the cargo was unloaded, there were no guns. Her Schluter's guns had not arrived. Again. I mean, the, att- the actual attempt to bring the guns in was terribly amateurish. It wasn't. It wasn't. This is another thing that's been shoved around. 
this series is still in production. So if you have any insights, documents or tapes you'd like to share with us, please write to documentaries at rte.ie. That's documentaries at rte.ie. Gunplot was written, recorded and produced by Ronan Kelly and myself, Nicolene Greer. Sound by Damien Chanel. Production assistant from Liam O'Brien and the Documentary in One team. Additional assistance from Sean McGilliforeig, Roisin O'Dee and RTE Radio and TV Archives. And don't forget, there's a companion television documentary to this podcast, also titled Gunplot and available on the RTE player. You've been listening to Gunplot, an RTE Documentary in One production. We live in trouble today.